Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Jamf Now, the number one device management solution for all your company's Apple devices. To learn more about how Jamf Now can help you secure your Macs, iPads, or iPhones, head to jamf.com slash mission daily to set up your first three devices for free. That's jamf.com slash mission daily or click on the link in the show notes. The future of social media is here. In today's episode, we talk with Gina Bianchini. She's a serial entrepreneur. She's raised over $140 million across three companies that she's co-founded. She's co-founded companies with Mark Andreessen, among others. And today she comes in to talk with us about the future of social media. What's it going to look like? How is it going to be for you, for your family? The answer is bright. It might surprise you. And we had a lot of fun in this episode. I think you're going to love it. It spans everything from Silicon Valley in the early days to how Gina got her start in technology at the high tech group at Goldman Sachs and so much more. Stay tuned. Gina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So I'm familiar with your work, but our listeners might not be yet. So when- <laughs> Your listeners are probably not familiar with my work, I but bet that's all right. <laughs> I bet some of them are. So a lot of our listeners are from the Bay Area. Uh-huh. How did you first come out to Silicon Valley? When did you land here? Yeah. So I landed here at birth. I was born in Cupertino in the 70s, grew up in Cupertino in the 80s when it was- sort of the fundamental transition from it being a bunch of orchards to the center of technology. Incredibly lucky in terms of just the time frame in which my parents were alive and had me and my family. And when Apple was taking off in the 80s, I was in elementary school, junior high, high school. And by the time I went to college, I went to I went to Stanford in part because not that I didn't want to leave home, sure. but because it was really important to me to play field hockey at a national university that was in California, at which point you have two choices of schools because I was like, the weather was really important to me <laughs> at the time. But I was always passionate about systems and systems thinking, but not from the perspective of technology or as an engineer, right. but people. My early passion was always in political organizing, thinking really about how, how does social change happen? And then living in and amongst engineers, right? it all felt very natural to me as I started to learn about technology, as I started to feel a lot more comfortable with what could be the impact technology could have on people's lives. That was always something that just really felt normal to me really by by happenstance of where I was born and the environment that I grew up in. When was the first time you maybe noticed a community or a system? I mean, notice as in like maybe seeing the the code in the matrix. That when, when did you see the potential there? Or when did you really start getting excited about the potential of systems and communities? Well, so if I go back to where my introduction to communities happened, it was in Cupertino. So, you know, the, the, there's always the famous story about the homebrew computer club. Sure. That was actually one of hundreds, if not thousands, of different groups that met where I grew up. Wow. So my dad was a high school history teacher who, in his spare time, restored old cars. So we actually had a Model T Ford that he had restored from parts when he was 16 years old. 
And so there was the model, the model T and the model A club that would like, everybody had a vest and we were, you know, in a rumble seat of like a, a model T and we'd drive around like in the Santa Cruz mountains and up to San Francisco, which by the way, I don't recommend driving to San Francisco in a rumble seat in case you were wondering, <laughs> it, it doesn't end well for anybody. But I raised mini lop rabbits, with oh, the, wow. the, the rabbits with the floppy ears. And there was the mini lop. A community for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The mini lop rabbit club. My mom had at one point was raising like some crazy number of guinea pigs. And there was the guinea pig club. There was always a way to get together in person mm -hmm. with the people who shared your interest or your passion or just even something you were curious about. And, you know, that wasn't just Cupertino in the 70s and 80s. That was America. Yeah. And one of the things that I loved about it and love about it and love about really, I, I think about them as, as brands that bring people together because that's really what they've evolved into from sort of this very sort of early sense of, you know, forums or chat rooms or communities is they celebrate people's creativity. They celebrate the thing that makes us unique. Sure. And provide a safe space for yeah. other and, creatives. And we always and, think yeah. about it as this sort of, especially in you know Silicon Valley and entrepreneurship, as this single person visionary. First of all, there's no evidence in the world that says that the best ideas are created by some dude who goes to the <laughs> mountaintop and sits there meditating for five days and like has his best idea. Right. If you look at the history of innovation, if you look at the history of great ideas, it's pretty messy and yeah, they come based. from connections. Yeah, they come from people putting themselves in environments with with people who want to push the envelope and to discover new things and try new things, just like them. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is so cool about Silicon Valley and the Bay Area, despite sort of the current challenges, is that this is a place where not just the mouse was invented or the laser printer, but local food. Right. Organic food. Genetic engineering. Genetic engineering. And, yeah. You know, so, so there's something to say about when we push ourselves into the areas that are the most that we're the most curious about right and we we connect and bring people together around those areas of interest that around those areas of curiosity whether it's model t fords or genetic engineering something special can happen right and so that's you know potentially a long-winded answer to where did this bordering on obsession of mine come from of, you know, how do we bring people together? The intersection of people's creativity and modern technology is, I mean, certainly in my lifetime, the most potent and powerful opportunity to create new things right. that we've ever experienced. And the fact that like it happened and is happening literally in the spot I was born is just a bonus, you sure. know, because I didn't have to actually move anywhere. I didn't have to like leave my family and friends behind. And if anything, some of the super small non-engineering human moments of how do you take apart a car and put it back together? How do you take apart a system and put it back together? And especially how do we build new systems and specifically 
in my case, I'm passionate about how do we build new systems that bring people together in new and much more meaningful and positive ways. And that's the work you're doing right now at yeah. Muddy Networks. Yes. And in a way, I mean, you've been doing that for quite a while. Like, I mean, arguably your whole life. After Stanford, were you in many communities at the time? Did you then join some communities after that? What was your transition like into the yeah. world of business and entrepreneurship? Yeah. So when I when I started Stanford, I wanted to study people systems, which at the time meant political science, it meant policy, it meant it meant government. The summer between my sophomore and junior year in college, I'm in Washington, D.C. at an internship. And I'm standing outside the White House with a sign. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be outside with a sign. I want to be inside at the table. And so I, I came back to school and I was like, hey, maybe I should try this thing, this this business thing, because it seems like that's a way that you can, you know, you can make money and you can have an impact. And business seems pretty interesting to me. I had no experience whatsoever in it. And I, you know, I, I rustled up some internship opportunities and finally picked one that was at a was at a company in San Francisco that did large aircraft and container leasing. Super sexy, <laughs> very sexy it's, company. It sounds like it. Yeah. I, I mean, you throw that in your LinkedIn profile today. Oh you're, my you're god! Just, uh, you have like made. you know yeah. that and some some abbreviations and like <laughs> I'm I'm LinkedIn famous at that point now. And so I ended up in a management information systems department which at the time didn't fully realize, this was before the internet, I didn't fully realize meant computers, but then I showed up and I was like, oh, it meant computers, I can figure this out. And so I did. And I ended up doing a bunch of really good work that summer that I was proud of and the company you know, kept these systems in place for actually years after my little internship. And I came back to school and I turned that internship into going into, at the time, investment banking and specifically in the backwaters of San Francisco in their high technology group, which was viewed- At Goldman Sachs, At right? Goldman Sachs, yeah. And it was it was viewed as the backwater. It was viewed as something you, know, you didn't want to do because the IPOs were only $25 million which this is, you know, <laughs> is it, this so is what was the hype back then? Was it junk bonds or what, what was everybody into? You know, it was, it, kind of like the it cool was the thing. transition from junk bonds <laughs> or high yield securities. <laughs> excuse as, excuse as, me. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. exactly. High yield, high risk securities, <laughs> distressed assets, as it, as it was called at the time. It was you know, big companies. It sure. was, you know, I remember- Blue chips and M&As. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. I had thrown my resume in in a folder when I was at school and and got this job. And little did I know it, that this was 1994, 1995. So when I started, one of the first IPOs that happened when I was in this backwater group was Netscape. So, you know, there there's something there's something to be said for following one's curiosity and passion. And then there's another thing to be said about great timing. Um, and I think that for the most part, we all sort of benefit from from knowing one from the other, but then also when there's great timing, taking advantage of it for sure. And so I, I was in the right place at the right time. But it sounds like you also had the right mindset because you showed up and said, okay, I'm going to learn about computers. I'm going to learn about systems. Where did that mindset come from? Because a lot of people, I think, have trouble identifying when a revolution is happening. And then it's even harder to get yourself the right mindset that says, I can actually learn as I go. I can learn as quick as, you know, as, as is needed. Where'd that mindset come from? I 
don't know, but I, I don't remember not having it. I think there's something to be said for when the world comes to you. Yeah. That it's a little bit like, you know, being at school and being like the new kid shows up and you can take the new kid under your wing because you're like, all right, here's what what I know to be true and here's what I can learn. Right. But I, I've, I've always had confidence in my ability to learn. Do you think that uh, runs in the family? Do you think that's maybe any, any ideas or insights there? No. <laughs> I, no, I don't know. I love the answer, by the way. I think honest yeah. answers like that are very rare. And it's like, we're definitely, the narrative fallacy runs rampant in our thinking. And uh, so that's yeah, a very I mean, honest I, answer. I, just, I, I think I have been fortunate to be surrounded by people who are curious. Yeah. And whether that came from my family, certainly. The fact that, as I mentioned, you know, my parents were always into something right. and always into something and trying something new. I also grew up in an environment where there were lots of new things to always experience and try and be a part of. Yeah. Um, and curiosity is what kind of allows creativity. It's the opposite yes. of judgment in some sense. And yes. that's and yeah, very that, cool. You know, I think the other thing is I, I'm not trying to be perfect. And if anything, I've gone out of my way to never make that a goal because I think that trying to be perfect is the opposite of experimentation and the opposite of what you need to be comfortable with failure. And you can't start new stuff and you can't bring something into the world if you're not a little comfortable with failure or imperfection. Definitely. Which means in practice, I don't brush my hair every day and I don't want to. And I'm right there if, with if, you. You know, if anything, that's why this is a podcast. Yeah, I mean, exactly. we don't have video rolling. We're on podcast right now. <laughs> like we have a face for podcasting. Absolutely. Um, but I think that keeping an environment available for curiosity, for following a thread, you know, as you and I were talking about before we started, just reading as many different things as yeah. possible, and putting different pieces together. It's it's you know it's why I love what we do at Mighty Networks. One of the things that I always think is is embarrassing is when somebody asks me, so, you know, what do I do for fun? Or like, what's my hobby? And I really wish that I could say that my hobby was this one specific thing, like woodworking or, you know, like <laughs> something, you know, something super specific. Yeah. But where my passion comes from is in the system behind that person who raises their hand and says, I want to create the absolute best world for woodworking. Yeah, in my local area, in my community. Or or around the world. Right. Because I actually think one of the things that's really exciting right now is I, I sort of think about it as the great remixing. Hmm. And, and the great remixing is essentially, you know, if you think about 30 years ago, we could meet in a local group for Model T forts or for guinea pigs, or for, you know, mini lap rabbits. Probably not our best examples, but but meaningful to me because those were pigs. real. Those are, yeah. those are authentic things I've spent my time doing. Right. But today, the beautiful moment we are in is that someone can raise their hand and say, I want to create the absolute best world for whether it's people with type 1 diabetes or whether it is exponential thinkers, mm -hmm. or whether it is a group of people who are seekers and searchers who want to come together and, and grow, whether that's physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, 
or something else altogether. You know, one of my favorite examples of a mighty network is something called Rolling Solo Australia. These are primarily women who are traveling the coast of Australia in RVs. Hmm. And they have found each other in part because of that shared passion, that shared interest, that shared experience. And so what's amazing in where we're sitting right now is that you can find kindred spirits wherever they are in the world. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what what really motivates me and what motivates our team at Mighty Networks is how do we create and push through this sort of aut- awkward adolescence we're in to an environment in a world where we can pull together not just the most interesting people mm-hmm. related to some of the things that I think are are sort of extreme and dark. But what does the world look like when that person who raises their hand and says, I want to create the single best experience for you know, female travelers, and I want to remix sure. the connections that we're making in the world to move well beyond where we've been with people we already know or by the luck of or or the or the detriment of where you're born. Right. You know, those are the only people that you get to hang out with or see in terms of what's possible. The great remixing is this opportunity to create just absolutely beautiful tribes of people. And that opportunity is unfolding around us and all of us might be closer to it than we think. Yes. Uh, Speaking of LinkedIn Famous, which we talked about earlier, you recently published an op-ed called The Facebook Era is Over. Do you see a massive, I mean, obviously you see a pretty large opportunity right now for people to create their own social networks and their own communities. How big do you think this opportunity is and how important do you think it is for people to explore this right now or start exploring? Yeah. So so I really think about the evolution is beyond social networks or communities. It's really about people and companies and teams that are building brands and businesses that bring people together. Yeah. And and the reason that distinction is important, it may sound like semantics, but it's important from my perspective because it encapsulates what is really happening, which mm-hmm. is this is not just a, you know, somebody was asking me this morning over email. So is this just like a forum from the 80s? I'm, first of all, I'm like, respect for the fact that you were on forums in the 80s. <laughs> but there's a sense of like, oh, well, you're just like, it's a bunch of people just talking. What's happening in these modern brands that are bringing people together is that they are, are combining all of these really new and modern elements. So it's about content. It's about online courses mm-hmm. and online workshops and pulling in live video plus community plus commerce. Because what's really exciting about this moment is that people are becoming more and more conscious sure. of where they're spending their time and what they're investing in and the impact that they want to have. And in bringing these different elements together, what we're seeing on Mighty Networks is that the worlds that people like Peter Diamandis is creating with Abundance Digital mm-hmm. or the team at Field Tank is creating with just an enormous 
realm and portfolio of courses and classes related to health and wellness or what Gretchen Rubin is doing with better mm-hmm. her you know her brand that's really about this whole concept of of the four tendencies and how you react to uh, expectations that are placed on you these tribes but these brands are pushing us forward right. and i do believe that people are searching for something new and if anything what I think is so fascinating about where we're sitting right now is some of the justifications that large platforms are using for enabling things that don't make us feel good is right. they're basically using things like, well, people like junk food too, or yeah. you know, people like to go to casinos. And I Fear, look at uncertainty it- <laughs> and doubt is a very short, uh, short Yeah. And I thing. look at it, I'm like, yeah, but 30 years ago, it was the hippies- that liked organic food mm-hmm. and it was small and it was on the outside. And today we don't think twice right. about what we put in our body as being something that we want to be healthier than Cheetos. And so, and yes, there's class elements of that. And yes, there are all sorts of socioeconomic dynamics to that. But fundamentally, I believe that we are we are seeing a, a transition and and just coming back to you know that piece i wrote on 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 linkedin the thing that was so interesting to me about it is right now it has nearly like a thousand comments on it and 2 years ago if i would have wrote something similar most of the comments were gina you're crazy like you know that's wishful thinking on your part you don't know what you're talking about everybody's on facebook everybody wants to stay on facebook and you're dumb <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, fine. You know, it's like I'm comfortable, you know, I'm comfortable having a perspective yeah. that's different because it's a great way to test ideas to see how far you are ahead sometimes of how right. much pushback and, I'm, and I'm, how much vitriol you get. <laughs> I'm okay putting a stake in the ground and saying that there's a better way for there's a better world for us to create mm. where we are having deeper connections, but more importantly, we are unlocking a new generation of creators curators, professionally led brands that Mm. bring people together in new and interesting ways. So fast forward to three or four days ago when I posted that and almost down to the comment, they are positive. Now, that's not to say that the world's changing overnight, but what it's saying is we are all seeking something new. And perhaps that thing that we are seeking is again, these new professionally led, highly curated brands that bring people together around the things that make them more interesting, more creative, feel like they're growing as people, but also it's not just things, it's not just content, it's the people that you're surrounded with and surrounded by. And so, you know, whether it's what you're doing in terms of, and, and so many of the brands that are bringing people together, are actually starting as podcasts. Oh, completely. Because yeah. there's a reason why we started with the media channels and a media totally, company. Yeah. Totally. And 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 what's so cool about it is we're inviting people into this conversation. Right. Much more so than and, and and you know, someone's probably listening to this while they're making dinner or while they're going on a walk or where they're sitting in traffic. It's augmented reality that works. Yeah, it really is. And so I look at it and I say we have never had the tools as creators and curators and just people that want to be in the arena 
to create rich, diverse, exciting brands that bring people together and fundamentally get more valuable and more useful to everyone with every new person who joins. And I think that the walls that have existed between, oh, we're going to do content or, oh, we're building an audience or, oh, we have an email newsletter or, hey, we're we're really focused on an online course. What the the pioneers in this world, these these pioneering entrepreneurs, these pioneering business owners, these pioneering curators, what they are doing is they're saying, hey, wait a second. In the same way that whether it was AT&T with the phone or, you know, Facebook or Uber, breaking down these walls and bringing everything together allows us to create a phenomena, a network mm-hmm. that gets more valuable and more useful to everyone with every new person who joins because we're bringing everybody together. And so that basically means for me as a creator, I'm doing less work. I can focus on my podcast. Right. I can drop that podcast into this network effect. And I can then watch how people take it and run with it. Yeah. And it's about seeding new relationships with people who are desperate for new, richer, more meaningful relationships with people who see the world in similar ways. And I don't think that's filter bubbling. Oh, no. I think there's something else going on. I I think the filter bubbling phenomenon comes from the fact that it's the equivalent of throwing rocks into this feed that's going really fast. And so it's all you're seeing, but you're not you're not connecting with people. No, I don't think so either. And I do think that the more and more people who throw their hat in the ring to create mm-hmm. and to bring people together, the more opportunity we have to create safe, supportive environments where each of us get to have a bigger impact and be a part of something that's bigger than what any individual can do just posting in a public feed. Yes. And I want to go back to your time at Goldman Sachs when you're researching that company started by Jim Clark and Mark Andreessen, Netscape. Could you tell us a little bit about your genesis from studying that company to getting to know Mark to co-founding Ning and then going on to Mighty Networks? I know there are a lot of stories there, but I mean, uh, how, did how that much happen? time do you have? <laughs> you're like, a while. Could you, <laughs> could you in two minutes, please? Articulate what happened in ten years of your life. Maybe, no, just, maybe just maybe just some <laughs> some quick years, some quick highlights because I think that's fascinating. Where you were following your intuition, you were following your passion, and that led you in uh, almost like a guide. And I, I know it's like we're we're looking at a high level overview, but I think that's fascinating how you got here. Yeah, you know, I've been fortunate that I have landed in some really interesting situations. And I would say that the thing I didn't realize when I was when I was younger, that in hindsight probably was the most important thing, was I found myself in situations when I was, you know, in, in my 20s and didn't know better, where actually having an opinion and a point of view mattered. And so I was at Goldman Sachs. I got recruited by a, a client company to come over and do acquisitions and equity investments and new business unit development. And it was a newly public company that merged into another company and then imploded spectacularly during the dot-com bust. Really pretty impressive, actually, how spectacular that explosion was. But I had left it before that happened. 
I went to Stanford Business School when it was still cool to go to to, to business school. <laughs> you know, it's like like there was a, a time and a place where it was like, hey, let's go into investment banking because there was no, you know, there was no Google. There was no like no. Facebook. Apple was not Apple. And if you wanted to the, get into business, that's yeah, just exactly, what, what at you the did. time. And then I went to business school. And in my second year of business school, it was the height of the dot-com boom. My experience during the dot-com boom was a little bit of like Rip Van Winkle. I was out of the market for two years at the height of the crazy and came right back in in 2000. And for those who are listening to this conversation, not the best time to come back into the market. But actually, as it turns out, it was the absolute best time. Because between 2000 and 2002, what happened was the posers left and the true believers stayed or, you know, the people who had nowhere else to go. (laughs) And the things that were built during those two, three years were the beginning of a renaissance. Mm. And during that time, I met Mark and was really fortunate because we headed off, we were friends. And then fast forward, so I was I had another startup that we ended up selling in 2003. And then in 2003, 2004, you know, this was right after things like Friendster had happened. Again, if you haven't heard of Friendster, you can Google it. It was basically a social network that took like eight minutes to load. That was pretty much what Friendster <laughs> was because everybody was like all excited because it was like the first time you could have a profile online. And so everybody was trying to get to the profiles online at the same time. And it was before sort of scalability really. Um, the load balancer said not yeah, kicked in. Not, something not yet. Like that. Not yet. Yeah. So then that had happened. MySpace was happening. And Mark came to me and was like, hey, let's let's start a company and and let's actually do it as a programmable platform so that people could build their own social applications. And at the time, the whole word app or application scared people. So it actually, it was a great lesson in timing is everything in, in many cases. So, so fast forward to the fall of 2006 going into to early 2007 and Ning, the company's name is Ning, as a programmable platform for developers hadn't really taken off. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, why don't we actually make it for normal people so that you know it's more drag and drop and people can pull together events and videos and photos and a forum and a blog all together in one place and create their own social network. So instead of social apps that were going to be about you know one feature, photos or videos, let's make it about the whole network. We launched it in February of 2007. So this was before Facebook was open to the public. And it was after MySpace had essentially taught a generation of creators and people to get in there and like adjust the HTML and add their own CSS and like just flare out their page like nobody's business. And it just took off overnight. So, you know, in the prior two years that we had, year and a half that we had been up, we had probably had like 5,000, 7,000 of these social apps created. And we had 35,000 Ning networks created in the first like two weeks, something like that. And so we had the opportunity, and it was incredible, to serve all of these really interesting creators. But it was everybody from big brands, like IBM had an intranet hmm. on Ning to, you know, every, I actually had 
one of the founders of, of Kickstarter come up to me one time, this was, you know, many years ago, and he's like, oh, Ning, yeah, that's where I get all my access to fetishes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hey, thanks. thanks. What a nice compliment. Yeah. I was like, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not, but like, I'm going to just roll with it. It's something. It's something. So what I was so proud of was to watch the creativity people were bringing to what they were doing, but mm. also the connection. So whether it was educators, whether it was 50 Cent, whether it was any number of different subcultures, like one of my favorites was something called the Offbeat Bride Tribe. It was basically goth brides that were like <laughs> really into like wearing Doc Martens with vintage dresses and they yeah. were like super cool. Or I was people... like member six in there. I was uh, excited to be there. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But... <laughs> Um, um, or people who were like tricking out their cars and, and motorcycles and everything else. And when you have the opportunity to serve people and to serve people's ex full expression of themselves and the connections that they're making with each other, I mean, that is that is a rush that I hope everyone has the opportunity to experience at least once. Because... It sounds like way more than a hobby, too. That's oh, on, yeah. Yeah. And from my perspective, Mighty Networks is certainly an evolution of what we did at Ning, certainly taking a number of the lessons that we learned as well. Like, you know what? The best way to build out this new world where people can raise their hand and say, I want to build the absolute best place for people who want to fully explore woodworking or I want to build the absolute best place for craft hairdressers to get better at what they do. It's a SaaS service. It's a software as a service platform that allows for subscriptions, payments, things that that creator, that entrepreneur, mm -hmm. that small business owner can do and generate direct money from and that we as a platform know who we serve and know what our values are, which are to be on the side of positivity, growth, connection, and people creating their own worlds where they get more valuable with every new person who joins. I love it. Gina, this has been awesome. If you had to leave our listeners with one thing and maybe a little bit about where to find you if they're interested, sure. uh, what would you leave them with? I would say, go for it. I would probably use the F word <laughs> to say, go for it. Do but, it. you know, I want to be a little bit more ladylike here. So I, I, I'll just say, go for it. <laughs> um, but fundamentally, it's throw your hat in the ring. Right. Like, get in, connect people, bring people together. Even if it's just like throwing a party at your house, throw the party. Don't get off your phone, stop taking photos of your party and throw the party. And you can find me, mightynetworks.com. Awesome. Thanks so much to everybody that's listening. Go check out Gina's work and we will see you next time on The Mission Daily. Hey, this is Ian from The Mission. I talked to Fortune 500 CIOs and IT visionaries about how much effort and energy they put into securing their devices. But they have teams of hundreds of IT professionals, an advantage that the average business doesn't have. Until now. Jamf now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your company's Apple devices. As your business grows, so does your digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices. 
This is especially true if you have remote employees like we do at the mission. With Jamf now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, or even lock and wipe a device as needed from anywhere. And all of this with no IT experience needed. The Mission Daily listeners can start securing their businesses today by setting up their first three devices for free forever. Add more starting at just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash mission daily. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash mission daily. We love Jamf and you will too. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.